You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the show. It is Wednesday, the 23rd of February. And as I said yesterday, I've managed to make it to Riyadh, arrived here uh, last night. And you'll be hearing a little bit more about the Saudi Cup and the American contingent from my broadcast colleagues, Michelle Yu and Matt Bernier, later in the program. But there was only one news story, really, in Britain, dare I say, in the world of horse racing yesterday. And that was that the champion jockey in Britain, Irishman Asheen Murphy, would be out of action for 14 months, backdated from the day that he handed in his license at the beginning of December, uh, after the independent judicial panel decided to suspend him 11 months for breaching COVID protocols, misleading BHA officials, and acting in a manner prejudicial to the good conduct of British racing, and a further three months for two alcohol-related offences when he tested positive at the races, first at Chester in May, and then famously, or infamously, I should say, at Newmarket in the autumn. Um, This has been talked about quite a bit already. 14 months uh, seems to have taken a few people by surprise in terms of its length. Lee Mottis, as the senior writer from the Racing Post, was following this hearing yesterday, uh, and it was a hearing that went into some depth surrounding exactly what went on in the lead-up to these charges. Lee, 14 months. A lot of people are saying, that's pretty harsh. Is it too harsh? I think, Nick, it seems harsh from the, from the outside when one takes into account that Asheen Murphy is someone who is suffering from major addiction issues but i think if you're one of those people and what many others necessarily because it's a, it's a media thing who were able to follow the hearing yesterday i'm not sure you would think it was harsh the hearing looked at two separate matters as you say nick we had the covid breaches um, and the the charge relating to that and we had the alcohol matters i think when we heard about the the covid breaches in detail the severity of what Asheen Murphy had done and the the trail of deceit linked to that, I think in my opinion, means that the punishment probably was merited. Just to run through it slightly, Nick, these were referred to during the hearing as the Mykonos matters because Asheen Murphy in September 2020 travelled to, to Mykonos on holiday having received a seven-day suspension. When he travelled to Mykonos on September the 9th, 2020, he knew that Greece had been placed on the United Kingdom government's red list. As such, it was a country that on his return, he would be obliged to spend 14 days in self-isolation. It was reported that Murphy said, I knew when I set foot on the plane, I would be telling people I was somewhere else. In fact, he said that himself at the hearing. He knew he would have to self-isolate. He knew he was not going to self-isolate. While in Mykonos, he did a blog and an interview stating he was in Lake Como. Uh, He lied then on his return on four BHA health questionnaires because when jockeys, when racing professionals were going racing, they had to state that they hadn't done anything that would uh, make them ineligible to be riding. So when Asheen Murphy came back to the United Kingdom, instead of self-isolating, within two days he was riding 
at Bath. He did that knowing he should have been self-isolating. When on an interview at Bath, he stated he'd been in Lake Como, not Mykonos. And when he went to Bath, he hadn't taken lateral flow test either when in Mykonos or since returning to Britain. So it really was a long series of very, very grave mistakes that Asheen Murphy made. And he then perpetuated those because an, an anonymous report came into the BHA questioning whether Murphy had actually been to Lake Como. He lied to a BHA investigator about that and then lied about it for, for many months thereafter. It was said that Asheen uh, had, had said to uh, investigators initially, eventually, I think I just had a jockey's mindset I felt like I didn't have COVID, so I wouldn't be a risk to the jockey population. Let's say he didn't take uh, a lateral flow test and he didn't self-isolate when he was supposed to self-isolate. That's what we heard from the, the BHA when it was laying out its case. Rory McNeese, Ashim Murphy's solicitor, offered a powerful uh, defence of Ashim Murphy in inverted commas. And I say in inverted commas because Ashim Murphy didn't challenge any of these charges. Um, having initially spent a long time lying about his whereabouts, he was actually very honest eventually with BHA investigators and didn't question anything that was being levelled against him. But Roy McNeese, who is a very effective solicitor and often is used by jockeys and racing professionals, um, he, he spoke of how David Revers, who is the racing manager to Qatar Racing, Sheikh Fahad's racing operation that he manages and employs a Sheen Murphy's retained jockey, he spoke about how he believed Ashim Murphy's failure of judgment had resulted from a dependence on alcohol. And alcohol was the real theme of when Ashim Murphy spoke to the hearing. He didn't have to do this, but he volunteered through Rory McNeese uh, to give personal testimony. And he sat in a chair, Nick, uh, within the, the basement hearing room at BHA's High Hoban headquarters in London. And he spoke for about 30 minutes and he spoke very powerfully. Um, I wrote him a piece in the Racing Post. It was almost like uh, someone giving the raw emotion of an Alan Bennett monologue. He, he really opened his heart about his, his situation. And I say most of the time he was talking um, about his, his issues with alcohol, which he'd spoken about in the past, but not quite with the frankness he delivered to the three members of the BHA's judicial panel. He talked about how his father is a recovering alcoholic. He said that he never drank in my existence and stopped before I was born. The reason it's probably so frustrating for everyone is it's not like I wasn't prepared. I was warned of the dangers but I couldn't resist. He said that he, I dealt with the success by drinking and the lack of success by drinking. That's the rock I perished on, really. People told me as a child this could happen, but I failed to avoid it. He told the panel of how during Glorious Goodwood 2021, when there was a lot of stress in his life, not just because of the Jockeys' Championship, which he repeatedly spoke of having uh, caused him great anxiety and felt pressure because of it, but there was also the pressure of this BHA investigation into his COVID breaches. He said that during Glorious Goodwood, every night that week, he blacked out. He couldn't remember to go into bed at any night of Glorious Goodwood 2021. He spoke of drinking a bottle of wine or a bottle of vodka every day at times and said that now I'm sober, I don't think I would have made those mistakes. I can't go back in time 
that they were grave errors. And he also said that, I wrote some notes on my phone of all the errors I've made in my life. I'm afraid every single one is due to drinking. Now, thankfully, as a result of that new market incident link that you referred to in October of last year and, and the disgrace and the headlines that surrounded that, Ashim Murphy has confronted properly for the first time his alcohol issues. And he's not drunk um, since that day, he stated. He's seen going to Alcohol Anonymous, Alcoholic Anonymous meetings. He's been getting support from Wayne colleague Kieran Schumacher, who's had similar issues in the past. And he is now in a better place. But the, the chair of the independent panel, James Omani, when delivering his verdict, which, as you say, Nick, was 11 months for the COVID breach, for misleading a BHA investigator, uh, and for acting in, a con acting in a manner prejudicial to the good conduct of British racing. Those 11 month, three 11 month bans that will run concurrently, so one 11 month ban and then 100 days for the alcohol breaches. Omani stressed that while he had enormous respect um, for Asheen Murphy um, and tremendous sympathy for the situation he found himself in because of his alcohol addiction, he couldn't disregard what he had done. And when Omani spoke, there were at times, Nick, a sort of incredulity to his voice. He said that you knew all along that in the respect of the COVID circumstances and regulations and the nature of Mykonos at that time, you had mm. to self-isolate. And this was the key line, that's all you had to do. That's where there was incredulity in his voice. He couldn't understand why this guy hadn't self-isolated. He said, you embarked on a deception. It was carefully planned, calculated and detailed, and it was prolonged for a significant period of time. This was conduct unworthy of a sportsman and previous champion. As you've acknowledged, you've let down your mates, your colleagues, the racing public and the sport. It was a very grave moment in the career um, of Asheen Murphy. Um, there was also an aspect that was raised, Nick, in, in, the, in the hearing where the panel felt that they had to take into account the Jockeys' Championship. Because in 2020, in that year when Asheen Murphy self should have self-isolated for 14 days, he wrote 11 winners in that period when he should have been self-isolating. He ultimately won the Jockeys' Championship by eight races from William Buick. Mm. Now, although you can't... It's not, it's not as simple as one add one equals two, and there would have been lots of different consequences of, of Asheen Murphy having self-isolated. The panel did feel that that should be taken into consideration, and it's also the case that Asheen Murphy won last year's Jockeys' Championship by two races. As part of last year, he received a second alcohol breach uh, in the space of 28 months at Chester in May of last year. Um, it, yesterday that merited a 10-day suspension. So one could argue that in the last two years, William Buick has perhaps been unlucky not to be, not to be champion jockey. It was, a really, it was a really grave, a really serious day for Asheen Murphy. I, I ended the hearing, Nick, though, whilst feeling that he'd been given a, a very significant suspension indeed. I think there was that sense of thinking this is a guy that was going down a very rocky road indeed with enormous personal problems and perhaps, just perhaps, what happened to him in October 2021, that incident in Newmarket, that might have been the moment that perhaps has saved Ashim Murphy because he's now not been drinking, he's now confronted his 
his alcohol issues. He won't be riding this year. You know, in a normal year, Nick, he might be out there where you are now in, 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 in Riyadh looking forward to riding in a race like the Saudi Cup. That won't happen now, but he does at least have time to rebuild his life and his career. And that is a, a very welcome thing indeed in many ways. Lee, that got me to thinking, that very point got me to thinking exactly how much this has cost him. 14 months, I thought, could easily cost Asheen Murphy a seven-figure sum in earnings. Could easily cost him a million pounds. He's been fined 31,000 pounds as well. And I was just thinking about the proportionality of the punishment. And I completely accept everything you said about how this really gives him a chance to, to reboot. And there had to be something, some censure, that reflected the severity of this and the and the threat to destabilizing British racing at the time because of the stringent protocols on, on British race courses. But I was sort of thinking if you contextualize it within international racing and indeed wider society, just taking those Australian jockeys, for example, who were given three-month bans for attending a party when Australia was under the most stringent COVID regulations, perhaps of any country in the in the world. And then Jamie Carr, though this was later reversed on appeal, got a further two months for misleading officials, for misleading officials. So effectively the same sort of charge that, that Murphy was charged under for misleading BHA officials, apparently one of the, the most serious ones. That's in Australia, where they're incredibly punitive, as you know, when they're dishing out punishments. That was a total of five months relative to the 11 that Murphy's got here. And I'm thinking this could have cost him a seven-figure sum in earnings, a million pounds plus plus the 31,000 fine, when the, the penalty for breaching the, the code for, for coming from a red list country at the time was a, a maximum £10,000 fixed penalty fine. So whilst obviously not trying to diminish the severity of what he's done, he's held his hands up and he's clearly got major issues. It, I, it just My instinct was this is, this is at the upper end of what we could have expected. Yeah, and I think you can certainly make that argument, Nick. You can point to the fact that the the entry points um, for the, the the if you like the COVID breaches, and when I say the COVID breach, I mean the actual COVID breach, the misleading the BHA investigator and prejudicial conduct. The entry points for those were three months, and the BHA stated in its case through Charlotte Davison, its representative, that it believed the severity of Murphy's misdemeanors warranted punishments at the up, up well not perhaps at the upper end but way but, but significantly beyond uh, the entry points um for those transgressions and i i was yeah I, I was surprised when um the 11 months was announced but as i say i was surprised but i didn't feel having heard the evidence mm. that it was significantly out of line with what he had done i know there, there was you often go into these hearings and it's slightly cynical and I think some people thought well there was always a fair chance that this would that, that his punishments would be backtracked to the point where he relinquished his license in in December and there was thoughts that well if he gets three months four months five months he'd practically be back um any day now would the would the punishment be meaningless because he wouldn't he wouldn't have really been doing much riding anyway over the winter, given that as a result of his cocaine ban in France, he probably can't ride in, in Japan anymore for five years, where he would normally have spent his winter. So I think some people thought that this actually might end up being a, um, not so much a whitewash, but a, a meaningless suspension. It's actually been, been anything but. It's a very significant suspension indeed. I just think, Nick, having, again, having heard James O'Mahony 
give out the his his judgment, if you like, and the and the penalties. He sounded like a man who didn't really want to do it, who had enormous sympathy for Murphy, but who was so shocked by that series of lies. And it really was a long trail of deceit over a long period of time in which Murphy had lied about his whereabouts to, to a number of people, but as you say, had, had risked, risked the health of his colleagues and other racing professionals, had shown a disregard for rules that the rest of the nation was having to follow. Um, and had risked the, the continued um, the continuation of his sport during that COVID period. I think he just had a sense of shock about him. That line, that's all you had to do when he put to Murphy, that all you had to do was self-isolate for 14 days, and you disregarded that and didn't even take a lateral flow test on your return. I think there was such shock within the panel chair's um, voice at that point that, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a long period he'll be out, Nick. Um, but as I, I think more important in some ways than that in, in the wider sense is that during that period out, Ashim Murphy can really uh, tackle his demons. He's on the way to doing that. And I just wonder if in a few years' time, when hopefully Ashim Murphy's right back at the top, riding Group 1 winners, perhaps even champion jockey again, whether he'll look back and think that not riding through 2022 was yeah. actually good for him in the so, long term. And, so you actually, I really hope that's yeah. the case. So you actually think they might have done him a favour by, by, by giving him a slightly longer ban. And it, it, do, do, you, do you sort of sense that although you have to deal with each issue individually, and quite rightly so, that that kind of accumulation of offences had some sort of effect on the way that the panel were thinking here? So you mentioned the, the cocaine ban in France, the previous alcohol ban, which obviously couldn't be added to these because it was beyond the time period but you know that's now three in total over a you know, several year period plus all this covid related um stuff the, the, the sort of accumulative effect meant yeah you know, this guy's got to be doing something else and getting himself sorted out for a significant period of time otherwise this isn't any good for anybody yeah i think so nick i think so and i, I think that's in some way tied to uh, the dual role of the bha in all this the bha is is the sports regulator and it has that regulatory role it has to make sure that there are rules and that people obey those rules for the good of of the sport and it absolutely had to do that in in this hearing yesterday and indeed it, as i say it, 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 it urged the panel to look beyond the entry point for the offenses so it has that regulatory role but equally, it has a pastoral care role and it had to display, or it did display that, by delaying this hearing until the point at which Sheen Murphy had started on his, on his journey to, to good health again and was in a position where he could attend the hearing. And both Murphy and Rory McNeese thanked the BHA for that delay. And I think the BHA now has that pastoral role ongoing. Mm. Obviously, it can't make Sheen Murphy better but it can offer him all the help um that he needs um and i think in a, in a wider sense as well Nick, of course th these issues affect people across all different um across all societies across all working sectors but ashin murphy is far from the first very high profile jockey who has had significant issues with alcohol um, over the years, um, and I know that when this this story um, developed through last year, the Professional Jockeys Association was adamant that its members wanted 
um, more testing and we heard of testimony relating to Graham Gibbons at the the uh, the trial at the, uh, the, the 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 case with with Freddie Tulisky, um last year as well. And I, I think that ongoing the relationship between between jockeys um, and alcohol is something that merits more discussion and that all the help that we can give to people in the weighing room who have very different lives to the rest of us because of the, the existence that they lead, that that help has to be there. And if more testing is required and crucially, if more money needs to be spent on testing, then more money must be found. Okay, that is uh, Sheen Murphy, who will be 14 months on the sidelines. I guess the good news for him, Lee, is A, he's got a lot of people supporting him, which, uh, you know, is, is clearly going to be very important. So he's not going to be on his own. Um, uh, he's got a quite close family that, that are, that are going to be around him, which is, which is obviously a, a big plus. That's not always the case when, when jockeys get in situations like this. They can often be you know, quite lonely and it'll just make the situation worse. And second, he's got other equestrian interests that he can quite happily pursue for a year. So that'll keep him, keep him busy and focused and interested. And I think that those are two things that are going to be massively in, in his favor from a, from a personal standpoint. So he should be able to come back with his head in a, in a pretty decent place if, if he wants to. I think that's absolutely right, Nick. You know, we, we, we've, we've, we've seen and admired um, these videos of Asheen Murphy show jumping. I mean, he, he looks remarkably talented um, at that discipline as well. And, and yeah, hopefully, Nick, alongside um, the treatment and the support he'll be getting for his addiction issues, hopefully he can spend time um, doing that. Um, and I think you're right as well, Nick. There is, there's an awful lot of goodwill towards Asheen Murphy. I, I know that I personally, as a journalist, have found uh, the last year or so very difficult. I found writing uh, pieces after the different stories broke last year difficult. I found writing a comment piece, a commentary piece in the Racing Post yesterday difficult. You don't like to criticise someone uh, or write critical things about someone that you like. I mean, one, one of my most enjoyable days on a racehorse, Nick, was in November 2019 at Tokyo Racecourse where Ashim won the Japan Cup on Suave Richard. And I I'd spoke to him before the race and spoke to him after the race. And really, I celebrated that success. And partly I celebrated that success, not because it was a, a British-based jockey winning a major international race and was there to see it happen, but because Ashim Murphy has always been so helpful to people like you and me, Nick. He's a guy who wants to communicate his love of horse racing to the media and he does it on social media as well he's someone who has embraced being a young face of racing and he wants racing uh, to thrive and i think for that reason he is a really popular guy and, and therefore i think it's difficult now for people to to put that to one side and judge what he's done objectively and it's difficult i think for for people in the media because we like him and we want him to do well and that's why I say my, my overriding hope is that, is that he can do well over this period. He can accept all the support and friendship that will be, that will be offered to him. And as I say, that we can celebrate lots more uh, great moments for Ashid Murphy when he enters the next chapter of his racing career uh, early in 2023. And one final, final point on this, Lee, and I just want you to consider this and, and something I was thinking about yesterday. In the week where, where, where Barry Hearn, and we have debated this quite a bit, said racing needs more characters, two-legged or four, 
have we in part been to blame trying to build a Sheen Murphy up into the next, you know, Frankie Dottori or whatever, trying to sort of puff him up into some all singing, all dancing, you know, multi-performer uh, because we feel that racing needs it. Is that too much pressure to put on the shoulders of one, uh, one young person? Or do you feel that that's just a role that, that he warmed to and therefore should be, should be responsible for? I think a bit of both, Nick. I think there's no doubt that, that racing um, has, for a long time, tried to get to grips with this question, what happens after Frankie Dottori? When Frankie finishes, who do we have really being the public face of horse racing? Now, I've spoken to Ashin about this in the past, and he has actually very enthusiastically expressed how he has wanted to be that person. And he's gone above and beyond. You know, we've seen his social media videos when he's driving home from the race or being driven home from the race. He's talking about his rides and what he's thought about those rides. I think he's actively wanted to be that person. Yes, we've probably encouraged him in that direction. Um, but I think he has he has wanted to do that. that there is the, the sad irony, though, that I think it was an extra layer of pressure on the shoulders of a young man who was already feeling enormous pressure because of his his work commitments, his he spoke of his desire to maintain um, percentages in terms of his his, his 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 wins, wanting to be jockey's champion. I think he's felt enormous pressure on himself, and I guess in the background, he's always known that he has the pressure of those addiction issues as well. So yes, I think that maybe racing has asked too much of of Ashim Murphy, but I think he's asked an awful lot of himself as well, and that's to his to his great credit. And when he returns, he might just have to reassess um, how much he wants to do. He'll probably have to reassess what his actual priorities are in in race riding as well. I think the way he has spoken about trying to be champion jockey and the pressure he's put upon himself by seeking to defend his title, they have been enormous. And I would be surprised if when he returns, he's chasing that. And we might see a slightly different sort of person. But I hope we don't see a different person in, in a lot of respects, Nick. Because I say one of the, the great joys of, of Asheen has been his willingness to engage with the people who love horse racing. He's done that directly himself and he's done that through the media. And that's a wonderful thing for him and for the sport. And I hope he continues... Um, with that. So here in Riyadh, three days out from the Saudi Cup 2022, a four-strong contingent from the United States. Mandaloon now officially the Kentucky Derby winner of 2021. Midnight Bourbon, who's knocked head with him so many times and has been pretty unlucky. Art Collector, now trained by Bill Motton. Country Grammar, trained by Bob Baffert. Michelle Yu and Matt Bernier, the two American superstars on the World Feed broadcast. Uh, Matt, good to see you here in Riyadh for the first time. You settling in okay? Yeah, doing very well, Nick. Uh, happy to be here and good to see you as always. Uh, and Michelle, we've done this gig a couple of times already. How strong is this US challenge this year? I think it's an interesting one. I don't think that we have a superstar name like we did last year when we had Nick's go and Charlotte didn't come in. But I feel like we have a very good contingent that's carried their game from track to track. And we have a little rivalry that goes on between Mandaloon and Midnight Bourbon. Mm -hmm. So I think that makes it very intriguing. 
I found the interviews with um, Steve Asmussen and Brad Cox that, that we conducted for the presser a couple of weeks ago really interesting, mainly because Asmussen, trainer of Midnight Bourbon, was bullying this horse up as though he was the he was the next curl in the next gun runner sort of saying this could be the best horse in in the world by the end of the year are you do you get it no honestly <laughs> uh and i don't mean that in a bad way but we we've seen we've seen this head-to-head rivalry between mandaloon and midnight bourbon a number of times the only time midnight bourbon was able to get the better of mandaloon was when he had everything go his way in one of the derby preps on the front end last year Otherwise, I just think Mandaloon's a better racehorse. Now, that doesn't mean that Midnight Bourbon doesn't have a pretty key tactical advantage in this spot because he assumes to be, if not outright on the lead, among the leaders early on, and I think Mandaloon's going to start his run from slightly farther back. So maybe that's going to turn the tables, um, but I, I, I don't know that I can <laughs> fully back that statement. Uh, Brad Cox says, before I come to Michelle, Brad Cox says Mandaloon's grown up now. You, a couple of times to me last year, said to me, is he a bit of a softy? What do you think? Well, I, I'm hopeful the Louisiana is sort of foreshadowing that he has put it together mentally because that was his biggest downfall to me last year. He ran in spots. He had moments where it looked like he had no reason to lose, and he would lose, specifically down at the fairgrounds. Uh, I thought his Kentucky Derby run was admirable, but I thought the better horse won that day. Medina Spirit, we're not going to get into that. Bigger picture, if he's put it all together... He is arguably the most likely winner of this race, aside from Mishriff. Um, having said that, I don't know that they are head and shoulders above the rest of the field. To Michelle's point, maybe we don't have the superstar headliner. I think this is a much deeper race this year, though. Oh, so it's a, it's a, a really com- competitive race. Uh, Michelle, but for the fact that he's owned by Judmont Farms, who would dearly love to win this race in, in memory of, of Prince Khaled Abdullah, he's now, of course, officially their first Kentucky Derby winner. Is Mandaloon the right type of horse for this type of test? That slightly unusual dirt surface, quite demanding in terms of its kind of a, the, the way that it rides, the, the one-turn nine furlongs. Is he the right type of horse for this? You know, I think most of our contingent actually might be the right type of horse because it's something different, right? Like Matt said, we've seen Mandaloon try different things and he just isn't elite at any of those. You know, when we saw Nick Sko come last year, we thought because he's so brilliantly fast that the one turn would really play in his favor. It didn't. He has to carry a speed over two turns. But with Midnight Bourbon and with Mandaloon, just because they haven't expressed something that they need to have specifically, having this different configuration, having the long run-ups, having that sloping turn, something in that might really click with one of these. Alright, so Bill Mott's tried this a couple of times before, with, ironically enough, a Judd Mott horse in Tacitus. <laughs> now he comes back with wait, a... Wait, I called Midnight Bourbon the new Tacitus. <laughs> yeah. My... yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Steve Asperson may not like you for that, but know, yeah. Right. So, so Mott's coming in here now with Art Collector, who won the Woodward at Saratoga, which is uh, 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 Belmont Park. I'm, I beg your pardon. Used to be at Saratoga, now at Belmont. Tri- nearly tricked myself there. Which is the one turn nine furlongs. So, does that mean yeah, this will be this will be perfect for him? No, not necessarily, right? Because we're talking still a different field, a different type of horse, different running styles. I mean, anytime that you, I think, take your horse out of an element in which they're accustomed to, especially an East Coast horse, and you throw in things like European closers down this long stretch, which is a very grinding situation, and you throw in things like Bob Baffert horses, which have speed, it just completely changes the complete layout of the game. So you can't say just because he won one one turn nine furlong race, this is going to be his game. Absolutely. So, okay. If you're looking for a grinder, 
uh, Matt Bonilla, would Bob Baffert's country grammar fit that bill? It seems as though Baffert's been very keen to get country grammar into this race. And he, in past years, has said, well, it's not enough of a speed track for my type of horse. He's a very good horse. He's an underrated horse. I was just chatting with Michelle before. I thought he was one of the best older horses in the United States prior to being sidelined last year. Uh, he had run really big in his two starts in Southern California, including a win in the Hollywood Gold Cup. And unfortunately, we didn't get to see him again. I think he's the kind of horse that if he's ready to go in a spot like this, he doesn't have to have the lead. He can sit just off. And I think the distance is going to be an issue for him. I can't say that about everyone else with that long straightaway. Uh, I, I think he's he is probably the most intriguing American entrant of the four. Okay, Michelle Yu and Matt Bonilla, the two U.S. superstars of the world broadcast that will be brought to you on Saturday. If you are in the United States, you can see the bulk of the card on uh, Fox Sports 1 and then the Golden Hour on FS2, and you'll be able to catch it in the U.K. as well on Racing TV uh, and on Sky Sports Racing and on the Green Channel in Japan and all across the world. The Saudi Cup coming to you uh, this Saturday. And from here in Riyadh to Hong Kong by way of Australia and J.A. McGrath this week. Nick, just continuing our conversation from earlier in the week about Russian Emperor delivering another blow to Golden 60's reputation with his great triumph in Sunday's Hong Kong Gold Cup. Golden 60 must now be odds-on to drop back in distance to tackle the champion's mile on his next start in late April. He'd be aiming at a second successive win in the race. It really does make sense to be heading in that direction. As for Russian Emperor, he picked up a first prize of £648,000 for his owner Mike Chung, which would help recoup a chunk of what he shelled out for the son of Galileo and champion Aussie Mare Atlantic Jewel. I'm sure there were many at Ballydoyle who considered Russian Emperor well sold when he left County Tipperary not too long after finishing 7th in Serpentine's Derby at Epsom in 2020. He took a long time to win in Hong Kong. His, his Gold Cup win was his first in his new home and it came at the 12th time of asking. Trainer Douglas White has indicated he'll now have a crack at the QE2 in late April. Enough looking back. What about today at Happy Valley? Well, a most interesting runner is a newcomer called Bulb Prince, who makes his race course debut in a Class 4 5 furlong sprint handicap on this uh, entertaining card, and this race is race number 5. Well, Bulb Prince has shown enough in three barrier trials to suggest he can at least be placed. But apart from taking on a strong field first up, he represents trainer Dennis Yip, who is currently forbidden from setting foot anywhere on a race course or in training facilities, including his stable. Dennis has tested positive to COVID. He's out of action for the foreseeable future. The Hong Kong government crackdown continues, with the whole population of Hong Kong facing mandatory testing on a regular basis in the month of April. It's going to be tough for everybody. And it's looking very bleak for any overseas visitors uh, who were planning Champions Day uh, in uh, April at Sha Tin. Well, back to Happy Valley. And I think Douglas White, who we were just talking about, can land a double. He's got the very handy Astrologer in race seven. So number one, Astrologer for Alexi Bedell to beat number two, Rewarding Together, and five, Armour Eagle. Take those in a tote swinger. 
And later on, Douglas, in race nine, he's got number seven, Carroll Street, who's a very handy sprinter. So far, his four wins have all come over 1,000 metres, five furlongs. He's stepping up to 1,200 metres, six furlongs here, and I think ridden quietly by uh, Daniel Moore, who's up from Australia. It's his first ride on Carroll Street. I think that he can really finish with a flourish and get up to beat number one side success. So race nine, number seven, Carroll Street to beat one side success. That's all from Hong Kong. I'll have more for you next week. Jay McGrath there. Thanks to Jim and to all my guests today. Lee Mottishead's still with me. And Lee, you've got a tip for me. So, Nick, what could be as far removed from the Saudi Cup on, on, on the racing front as, as you could imagine? Well, I think the Virgin Bear Open Hunters Chase, over three and a quarter miles at Doncaster this afternoon, is probably as far removed as what you're going to be enjoying uh, as the week goes on. And in that Hunters Chase at Donny today, Nick, I'm tipping Soldier of Love, trained by Paul Nichols, ridden by uh, Will Biddick, formerly a very useful horse indeed. Um, I think he will come on fitness-wise for a run at Musselburgh 18 days ago. I think it's a fair price. So Soldier of Love for me in the 4.35 at Donny. Lee, thanks so much. That was Wednesday the 23rd of February. I will be back with you in Riyadh tomorrow morning. See you then. Thanks so much. Bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.